0: Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Uh, I'm going to ask if you would uh, to pull out your handout. If you do not, uh, if you do not have one, raise your hand, and we'll make sure to get you a, a handout. We're going to continue in our study of the doctrine of Christ. Tonight's topic on the doctrine of Christ is His role, His title. Uh, titles as prophet, priest, and king. So we're going to walk through a few different verses of Scripture that exhibit those particular roles that Jesus had. And this is a, a study in the life of Jesus that interconnects who He is, His identity, His person, and what He has done, His ministry. And so there's an overlap there. Next week, we're going to study the doctrine of the atonement, which is an aspect of what Jesus did on the cross. And then the following Wednesday night, we'll conclude our study on the doctrine of Christ proper here. Uh, we'll still connect with the doctrine of Christ throughout several of our other doctrines, but we're going to conclude that study by looking at the resurrection, the topic of the resurrection in, uh, in the doctrine of Christ. And then as we finish, uh, after we finish the doctrine of Christ, we're going to pick up with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It's been a few weeks... Um, Uh, understanding the third person of the Trinity, or seeking to understand the third person of the Trinity. And then when we're done with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, a month or so later, we will move into the doctrine of salvation proper. Uh, So we will... That's kind of where we're headed. So uh, on your handout in front of you, uh, you have a couple of quotes or extended series of questions. Let me start with the questions there. What do the patterns promises, and prophecies of the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? The reason I ask that question is because it fascinates me, and it should fascinate all of us as believers, that the Old Testament contains 39 books over 1,500 years of human history or biblical history. Uh, and the New Testament contains uh, about 70 years of history, at least from the writing of the first New Testament book, probably less than that, really about 40 years of history history in terms of just when the books were written. And really it just details the life of Christ and the early life of the church. So you're, you're only looking at a few years of actual history in the New Testament as compared to 1,500 years in the Old Testament. Why is that? Why does God give us so much that in our case as Christians, 2,000 years removed from the events of the stories of Christ, is disconnected from our Christian experience or our religious experience. I mean, we don't, we don't offer sacrifices like the people of Israel did in the Old Testament. We don't have to go through the priesthood. We don't have to go to the tabernacle. We don't have to all pack up and make a, 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 a pilgrimage to a single location where the high priest is going to offer the Day of Atonement sacrifice. We as Christians can worship anywhere right and and why is it that god gave us 39 books over 1500 years what what's the point of that well i think one of the things that it shows is it shows the patience of god the patterns promises and prophecies of the old testament reveal the patience of god in their ultimate fulfillment in the person of jesus christ why do we have prophets why do we have The priesthood. Why do we have the sacrificial system? Why do we have the temple? Why do we have all of those pictures and images in the Old Testament? They're certainly for the characters and the individuals who experienced those. I mean, it mattered to Moses that he met God at the burning bush. But why did God raise up Moses anyway? Why did he give him the law? What was the point of all that? The point of the Old Testament truthfully points to the fulfillment that Jesus was going to bring in the New Testament. Let me give you a quote from Lewis Allen in his uh, wonderful little book, The Preacher's Catechism. He writes this, In all these places, in 10,000 more, Jesus speaks, and he speaks of himself. He speaks through those frustrated hearts and assigned acres and worship artifacts, and they all lead us to him as we understand that the Bible has one plot line and that every detail, every one, leads us on in that unfolding plot. In other words, the entirety of the Bible points to Jesus, finds its root in Jesus, finds its fulfillment in Jesus, finds its explanation in Jesus. And I'm going to walk us through his role as prophet, priest, and king to show us how he's a fulfillment of what took place in the Old Testament to help us make sense of our faith here in the New Testament. D.A. Carson puts it this way, a quote you do not have, but he says the Old Testament's real and binding authority must be understood through the person and teaching of Him, that is Jesus, who, points who to whom it points and to whom He so richly fulfills it. Uh, the writer uh, Stephen Wellam goes on to say, implied though it may be the Christological claim in, in, the, in the text in the New Testament is staggering. Because Jesus understands, this is what Jesus' self-explanation of him in the Old Testament, Jesus understands himself to be the entire goal of the Old Testament and the sole authoritative interpreter of its teaching. In other words, Jesus, as he walked and taught and preached and ministered and ultimately would be our sacrifice, understood himself to be the sole fulfillment of everything that happened in the Old Testament. So there's a reason we study the Old Testament, because the Old Testament points us to Christ. Let me show you how that happens in three specific areas. Jesus as prophet, Jesus as priest, Jesus as king. First, Jesus as prophet. Did you know that Moses said there would be another prophet that would come after him? The book of Deuteronomy chapter 18 the Lord your God, this is Moses writing, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired that the Lord your God had Horeb on the day of assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire any anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they're right when they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth. He shall speak to them all that I command him. And whatever, whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So Moses said, there's going to be come someone who is like me. He's a prophet of God. What is a prophet? Uh, sometimes we think of prophet as someone who foretells. And we think of, uh, you know, Isaiah foretelling the birth of Jesus. And that is true. Prophets do foretell. But most of the Old Testament prophets and those who would prophesy are forthtelling. They're not just telling us what's going to happen in the future. They're simply telling what God has to say in the present to a particular group of people. That's what Jeremiah did and Isaiah did. That's what Elijah did. That's what Elisha did. That's what Moses did. He was being an instrument of God speaking to the people of Israel. That's why God gave Moses the law. And Moses is the preeminent prophet of the Old Testament. He is the primary spokesperson, not the only, but he's the one through whom God gave the law. I mean, the, the entire Jewish people, the Jewish uh, believers held Moses up to be this penultimate standard of what it meant to be a prophet. Why? Well, Moses was the one that met God at the burning bush. Moses was the one that God used to rescue the people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses is the one that went back to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Moses is the one that went up on the mountain and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Moses is the one that the Bible says God spoke to him face to face. Moses is the one that when God showed him his glory, he walked down the mountain, he had to put a veil over his face because the people looked at him and his face was shining like the sun. Moses is the penultimate prophet in the Old Testament, the spokesperson for God. In fact, we know this to be true because the people of Israel in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, were called up and hung up on Moses. In fact, one of the reasons they didn't believe Jesus is because they couldn't get past Moses. Now, here's what I want you to understand: in the New Testament, Jesus takes on the mantle of Moses. Some of you, this will not be new for, because I've I've talked about this before in the life of our church, but it's been several years. The New Testament shows us that Jesus is the new Moses or is the penultimate prophet. Look with me, if you will, in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. We could go back further. And, And in fact, I'll tell you, you remember that Moses, as a little child, was rescued from Pharaoh. Remember that? His mother hid him because Pharaoh was killing all the Hebrew boys, only letting the Hebrew girls live. And, and God protected Moses by his mother being faithful enough to put him in a, in a wicker basket. And it floated down the Nile, and Pharaoh's daughter picked up that basket. Do you realize that Moses was rescued as a baby in Egypt and Jesus, if you look in Matthew chapter 2, was rescued as an infant by going to Egypt? Matthew does that intentionally. It's a true story. Both are true stories. but There's an intentionality to that because Matthew is helping us realize that Jesus is a fulfillment of Moses in a way that Moses never could be. And you move on to Matthew chapter 4. In the temptations, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Why did he fast 40 days and 40 nights? In part because in the wilderness, the people of Israel walked 40 years with food. In part because in the wilderness, remember what happened with Moses after he murdered the Egyptian? You remember how many years he was in the wilderness before God spoke to him at the burning bush? It's 40 years. Matthew's drawing a, a direct connection between Moses, 40 years in the wilderness, and Jesus 40 years in where? 40 days, rather, in the wilderness. I mean, there, there's a direct connection. Matthew is Matthew's affirming Jesus as a new Moses. He continues that Jesus' ministry, Matthew chapter 4:17, from that time, Jesus began to what? He began to preach, saying, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." Jesus' first act as a serving minister of the Lord in, in the capacity of being, of being a, a messenger of God, his first act was not an act of a priest. His first act was not an act of a king. Now we're going to talk about both of those. His first act was the act of a prophet. What's Jesus known for? His preaching and teaching. He, the Sermon on the Mount describes him as preaching with some, as someone who has authority. Someone who is not like someone else. He, he has authority. He didn't preach and teach like the scribes and the Pharisees. Then look, if you will, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Have you ever noticed this? Seeing the crowds, where did Jesus go? He went up on the mountain. Why did Jesus go up on the mountain? Or why did Matthew say he went up on the mountain? Well, probably because he was on a mountain, okay? I mean, it's a factual story, But also, Matthew draws out that particular detail because where was it that Moses got the law of God? On a mountain. And then what did Jesus do when he went up on the mountain? He went on to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. He went on to say, you must uh, fulfill the law and the prophets or must keep the law in in a way that's more perfect than the Pharisees and the religious leaders. In other words, what Jesus is doing is he's standing up in front of all his hearers that day and saying, what you heard Moses say is well and good, but I'm going to give you a bigger picture of it. In other words, Jesus is identifying himself as a prophet and as a spokesperson for God. Which is a glorious truth. He is speaking for God. He is speaking as God. So Jesus has a role of prophet. And so every time we read that Jesus taught, every time we read that Jesus preached a sermon, every time we read that Jesus gave us something, we need to understand this isn't just him as a spokesperson for God, like Moses Or like someone else, this is him being God speaking, but he's taking on the role of prophet. Jesus is not just prophet, he's priest. Uh, Did I miss a blank? Jesus is prophet means that he speaks for God. If I missed a blank there. I've given you some extra blanks if you want to make some notes on your own. Secondly, Jesus is priest. One of the roles of the priest in the Old Testament was to observe the sick and pronounce lepers clean. Did you know that? As you know, one of the particular responsibilities of of an ancient Israelite priest was that they would be the ones that would receive a leper who claimed to be cleansed. They would also be the ones to look at a leper and say that he was unclean. They would be the ones that would go into the house and declare a house clean or not clean. That's why there's all these laws in the book of Leviticus uh, and, and, uh, and Numbers and Exodus that talks about the cleanliness of houses and the cleanliness of people. It was the priest's responsibility to declare something clean or unclean. So it should not be surprising at all that a significant majority of Jesus' ministry was a ministry of healing and declaring someone who was unclean, clean. What's he doing? He is taking on the role of a priest. Notice this, for example, in verse, uh, in verse 23 of Matthew 4. Jesus went throughout all Galilee... Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. We'll come back to that in a moment. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. He's taking on a role that would be a role that a priest would do, which would be declaring someone clean. Now, in the gospels in particular, his priesthood is a little bit masked. In other words, it's not as clear as his role as prophet. And it's not as clear as his role as king. And, and the reason for that is because Jesus' lineage is not the lineage of the Aaron, Aaronic priesthood. He didn't come in the line of Aaron. He came from the line of... Where did, what, which line did he come from? David. David. And that, there's, there's reason for that, and we'll talk about that in detail in a moment. He, he came to be king. But the book of Hebrews describes Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek, which uh, I, some, of you, some of you have read through Hebrews and you've read through, about Melchizedek and you've thought about Melchizedek from the Old Testament, book of Genesis. Maybe you're a little confused. I'm just going to be honest with you. There are a few times I've been confused about Melchizedek myself. So I'm looking forward to preaching that section of, of Scripture in the book of Hebrews. We'll get to that in due course. Nevertheless, the book of Hebrews makes it abundantly clear that Jesus is priest. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of the death, that is the devil, that was our memory verse in January, excuse me, in December, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not to angels that he helps, but the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a faithful and merciful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are tempted. In other words, why did Jesus come in human flesh? Why did he take on human flesh? Why is he both God and man? He's both God and man because he came to represent God to people and represent people to God. He came to be a priest. And had he not lived, served, and ministered, and functioned in the role of priest, then we would be on our own and standing before God. As it is, we're not on our own standing before God. In other words, every time we pray, folks, we do not pray based on our own goodness and righteousness. If you're waiting on God to hear you because you had a good day, you're going to be waiting a long time for God to hear you. God does not hear you because you were nice to your husband today, or you were good to your wife. He doesn't doesn't hear you because your righteous deeds yesterday outweighed your unrighteous deeds from the day before. He doesn't. Hebrews 4 describes it this way. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin." So he experienced everything we experienced, and yet he didn't sin. So, verse 16 of chapter 4 let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Folks, the only way we can pray is because Jesus is standing in between the Father, and when you pray and when I pray, we pray based on the righteousness of Christ based on Him objectively standing in between us and God, representing us to the Father, representing the Father to us, and so we can pray. So here's why it says we can pray boldly. Because you're not praying based on your righteousness. And some of the worst prayers we can pray are the half-faith prayers. God, maybe if you could, would you please? Would, would, maybe would you do this? That's praying based on our thoughts about what either God can do or what God should do based on us. It's not the way we should pray. We should pray boldly. And we should pray big prayers. Because Jesus is a great high priest, not a small high priest. He's not a little high priest. He's a massive high priest. And we're not praying based on our righteousness. We're praying based on God's or Christ's righteousness representing us. Jesus is a great high priest it means that he represents us to god and that he represents god to us jesus is a high priest we'll come back to that truth in a moment as we close up our time tonight. let me move to the third title that jesus has and is found in the new testament jesus is king he's king let me walk through just a few examples of this matthew chapter 2 who did the wise men come to see they came to see the newborn king of the Jews. Of course, when they showed up in Herod's court in Jerusalem and said, Where is he who's born king of the Jews? The Bible says that Herod and all of Jerusalem was in quite the uproar because Herod was the king. He wasn't expecting another king to be born. But he discovered there was a king born. Of course, that's why he went out to destroy those kings. But or those, those boys, those babies in the book of Matthew. The New Testament, particularly the book of Matthew, goes to great pains to tell us that Jesus is king. That's why in the book of Matthew, the genealogy follows Joseph's line instead of Mary's line. Of course, we know that Joseph was not Jesus' earthly father, but the reason it follows Joseph's line is because Joseph's line went all the way back to David. And Matthew is saying that Jesus has the right and the privilege of the kingship. That's an important truth, a tremendously important truth. A truth that goes all the way back to the book of Daniel when Daniel saw and interpreted the prophecy, or excuse me, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, where this stone came out and destroyed the image that he saw. Daniel said very explicitly in Daniel in, in the interpretation of that prophecy in Daniel 2 that that stone was going to out of that stone was going to come a kingdom that would never end. In other words, there was going to be a reign of a king that would begin at the time when that stone destroyed that kingdom. Of course, that kingdom, fourth kingdom, the kingdom of clay and iron and the feet, represented the the empire of Rome. And that's when the stone came and that's when the king was established. Of course, that's when Jesus was born, when Rome Rome was reigning. And Jesus, when he stepped onto the, onto the, uh, the earthly sphere and began his ministry, His first message was the same message as John the Baptist. Repent for what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus was identified as a king, was worshipped as a king by the Magi, was described as beginning his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And here's something to note. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first recorded sermon, at least in the book of Matthew, it's all about what? the kingdom. I would encourage you to do something on your own time. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and underline or highlight or make a note in your in your notebook every time that Jesus talks about the kingdom or the king or heaven. It's all over the place in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. More than 20 times in 3 chapters Jesus talks about the king or the kingdom or heaven because the sermon's all about the kingdom. Now that's a pretty audacious sermon content for a traveling country preacher with no apparent lineage in the Old Testament or in, in New Testament times. I mean, that, 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 it wasn't the content. See, the Jewish people only had a kingdom for a couple hundred years. David's reign and Solomon's reign when the kingdom was at its peak uh, only lasted two generations, about 70 years under David and Solomon. After that, it split. And it wasn't long after that, a couple hundred years before Assyria destroyed the northern tribes, and a couple hundred years after that, the, the Babylonians destroyed... Web is restricted for this My phone's listening to me talk. That's weird. Watch. That's weird. One of these days, I'm going to give up uh, connected technology. Nevertheless, sorry. Um, Where was I? Jesus speaking about, uh, about the kingdom. I mean, the Jewish people didn't have a kingdom. They didn't have an empire. They weren't reigning. And so what in the world was Jesus doing coming down, talking to people about a kingdom? He was talking to people about a kingdom because he's a king. In fact, when he stood in front of Pilate, Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus questioned Pilate, are you saying this or is somebody else telling you this? And he says, "Uh, um, you know, this is what people are claiming about you. And Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then my followers would fight. But my kingdom is not of this world, it's of the next world. So my followers are not going to fight. That's what Jesus said, articulated that very clearly. In the book of John, when Jesus was crucified, Pilate put over his cross... A statement that read, the king of the Jews. Of course, the Jewish religious leaders didn't like that at all. They said, right, that he said he was the king of the Jews. Pilate's answer was, what I've written, I've written. At his birth, Jesus was worshipped as, or acknowledged as king through the Magi arriving. At his death, he was stated as king. And then in Matthew 28, do you remember what Jesus said as he went up into heaven? Great commission. Do you remember the very first line of the great commission? Not go you in all the world. The very first line is, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is prophet. He speaks for God. Speaks as God. He's priest. He represents God to us and us to God. He's king. He has a kingdom that reigns and that rules. He has authority. That truth, those truths, would have been staggeringly important to early Christians. Because they didn't live in a place of power. You recognize that, right? Paul never had influence in Rome. The Roman Empire was not Christian in any capacity. And we might even argue that even after Constantine became a Christian and Christianized Rome, it still wasn't truly, genuinely Christian in any real capacity. Power corrupted uh, the Roman Empire not long after that and went on to corrupt the Roman Catholic Church through much of the Middle Ages, problematically. So it would have been tremendously important for the people uh, who are Christians to know that there's a kingdom that reigns. There's a rule that's going on even though they're not experiencing that politically or in terms of their daily lives, but they have a king that they can trust in and that they can rely on. Now, one of the most beautiful aspects of these particular titles that, that Jesus claimed is the fulfillment aspect of these titles. What do I mean by that? What he said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus is prophet. He isn't just telling us that you and I are to abide by the, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Because he says in the Sermon on the Mount, be you perfect for my heavenly Father is perfect. Be complete, totally righteous, inward and outward. The Pharisees were good at being outwardly righteous. They looked righteous, but they were inwardly, you know, moldy and sinful and wicked and Some people are pretty good inwardly, but they're not good outwardly. What Jesus is saying is we're to be perfect, complete, righteous in our motives and righteous in our actions, through and through. And and he still expects us to do that, by the way. You read the Sermon on the Mount, that's his expectation of you. Read the Ten Commandments, that's his expectation of us. He wants us to abide by his law. But do you realize that we can't? Of course you do. You're married to people who can't. Because you're married, you realize you can't live up to a standard that is beyond you. Jesus fulfilled his own sermon. Folks, Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophetic word of God in the Sermon on the Mount. Everything he said for people to do, blessed are those who persecute you for righteousness sake. What was Jesus? He was persecuted for righteousness sake. Jesus is the absolute fulfillment of everything he taught in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus is the absolute fulfillment as priest. In other words, he's a very representative of God to us and us to God. Not the very least because he is what God's people were supposed to be. The people of Israel were supposed to. Some have wondered, why do we have, why do we have Israel? I've wondered this. Why in the world did God choose these people? My, my son last night asked me before bedtime. He always gets into great theological and philosophical questions right at bedtime. I think he does that in part because he's curious and in second part because he knows he'll get me talking and he can stay up later. I can't help but answer. Why Israel? Why a group of people who never got it? In fact, when we look at Hebrews 3 and 4 this upcoming Sunday, we might ask the same question. Why a group of people that never got it? Why did he choose them? Couldn't he have chosen somebody else who might have gotten it a little better? I don't know. Because I don't know if there's anybody that would have gotten it any better... Because nobody ever really gets it. Why did he choose Israel? He chose Israel because God wanted to show off the greatness of his grace and favor. He picked Abraham out of a place where there were no God followers. And he brought Abraham out. And he chose this family to represent himself to earth. And when he rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt... It was supposed to be a, a depiction of the greatness of God. God defeated all Egypt's deities. God rescued the people of Israel out of Egypt. He sent them into the promised land to defeat all the deities of the Canaanites. To show that he is God. Well, what did the people of Israel do? They failed. They sinned. They disobeyed. Jesus didn't, though. If you go back to Matthew chapter 4. In temptation passages. Uh, we, we don't have time to look at this in detail. And I've done this before. In the church, it's probably been five or six years ago. If you read the temptation passages, Satan came to Jesus, said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. He answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We oftentimes read that and think, Okay, the way to deal with temptation in my life is to quote Scripture, Satan. Well, I mean, it's tremendously important to know Scripture. It's a good way to deal with temptation to quote Scripture. But Jesus isn't primarily teaching us how to deal with Satan. When was the last time that you face-to-face dealt with Satan in temptation? I love you. I love you, church. I don't think any of us ever have dealt face-to-face with Satan. I'm not sure we warrant the attention of the great archenemy of God. Well, you've got to remember, Satan is not the equal of God. He's a fallen angel. He can only be one place at one time. God's everywhere. He's not like Satan. I don't know that we warrant direct temptation from Satan. Satan's minions, maybe. Demons, absolutely. Directly not Satan. What was Jesus doing here in the text? Well, he's in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness where Israel was 40 years. He's in the wilderness where Israel had every opportunity to obey God. And by the way, every quotation that Jesus makes, quote that Jesus makes from Deuteronomy, reflects back on a place that Israel sinned in the wilderness. So... Part of what's happening in the temptation narrative is that Matthew is telling us that the people of Israel sinned in the wilderness when they had every reason to obey God. I mean, think about it. I'll talk about this again Sunday, so forgive me if you hear this twice. The people of Israel walked out of Egypt after the plagues, following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They saw God do all of these miracles... And they get in the middle of the wilderness and they wondered what they're going to eat the next day. And they complained about the bread that God did provide them. And they thought they were going to start... They were going to die of thirst because they didn't have water. In other words, they had every reason to trust God because God had shown himself faithful. And what did they do every time? They disobeyed God. They didn't trust God. They didn't believe God. They didn't obey God. They didn't honor God. So Satan tempted Jesus with bread. He tempted the people of Israel with bread. The people of Israel failed. By the way, if you want to go even further back, the song we sang, Jesus is our new and better Adam. Where did Adam and Eve first fall? They fell with food. Just want to remind you, Satan's temptations are not new. He he tempted Adam and Eve with food. He tempted Israel with food. He tempted Jesus with food. And Jesus is the only representative for us that didn't fail in that temptation. He succeeded. Where Adam failed... And Adam failed in the garden. Israel failed in a wilderness. Jesus failed in a wilderness after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting. He didn't fail because he's our representative. Part of the point of the temptation narratives is that while Israel should represent God to us, they don't because they sin. And we don't because we sinned. But guess what Jesus did? He came and he came to represent God to us and us to God. He didn't sin where Israel sinned. He is our representative. He's our priest. Also, he fulfills the whole kingship role. Look at uh, the book of Revelation. Wonderful book of the Bible. Tremendously encouraging book of the Bible. Some of us read it and we get caught up in all the details and what are these images and what's all this going on? Let me tell you how to read the book of Revelation that would encourage you. Read it and just look for the pictures of Jesus. Ignore everything else at least for a reading, if you just read the book of Revelation for the pictures of Jesus, if, if that's all you see, I promise you, you'll come out of that book smiling. Because he is victorious. He is the one who rules and who reigns. In other words, the New Testament, particularly the book of Matthew, at least as I've reflected on it tonight, goes to great pains to tell us Jesus is God's spokesperson to us. He tells us what God wants us to know. He's the prophet. He's the priest. He represents us to God and God to us. He's the king. He rules and he reigns. And here are the takeaways. And these should encourage us mightily. Folks, that Jesus is prophet means that we can trust what Jesus says. Isaiah 41.10, fear not for I am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Jesus says, Matthew 11, Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, for, for God so loved the whole world that whoever believes in his Son, only begotten Son, will have eternal life and will not perish. Over and over again, the things that Jesus says I want to tell you something. He's God speaking to us, we can trust what he says. I'm so thankful to be a part of a church that is doing its best to try to structure our church based on what Scripture teaches, okay? We're not perfect. We're never going to be perfect. If you're looking for a perfect church, go find another one because this isn't it. We're not going to be perfect. Invite your friends to this church because we know we're not a perfect church and we're not trying to be a perfect church. We are trying to be a biblical church. We are. And as long as I'm here, that's what we're going to try to do. I'm grateful for that. And here's why. Because we can trust what Jesus is. If we submit to the authority of Scripture, what the Bible teaches us, we can be assured of the blessings and the provisions and the promises of God. Because Jesus is speaking as God to us. So when you read the Bible and it says this is what Jesus teaches us and what we can do, we can come to Him when we're weary and He will give us rest. He means it, folks. Because he's God speaking to us. So that Jesus is prophet means that we can trust what he says. That Jesus is priest means that we can trust that he knows. What do I mean by that? One of the greatest benefits of close people in your life and in my life is that there are just some people that we can trust, that know us, we know them, and maybe they've been through some things like we've been through. Okay? You have some of those people in your life. I have some of those people in my life. I have some of those people that I can talk to, they just know. And I trust them. And you have people like that in your life, they just know you can trust them. One of the beautiful aspects of the deity of Jesus and the incarnation of Jesus is that God wrapped himself in human flesh. Hebrews puts it this way. He was tempted in every way as we are. Can I tell you something? The next time that you're struggling with faith, Jesus knows what that temptation is like. The next time you're struggling with guilt, Jesus knows what that temptation is like. The next time you're struggling with fear, Jesus knows what that temptation is like. The next time you're struggling with forgiveness, I promise you, Jesus knows what that temptation is like. Addiction. You name it, He was tempted in every point as we are, yet without sin. So, do you know who knows What's going on in your heart, in your mind, in your soul? Jesus does. I may not. Part of the beauty of a good church, a community, of, a community here, a community with godly leaders, elders, deacons, Sunday school teachers, is that we know each other. And that, that's important. We need that measure. But we need that because it's representative knowledge. Jesus is the one who really, really knows us. You want peace? You want help? You want rest? Know that Jesus knows. Nobody else may get it. But he does. One of the things I love about my mom, and my dad sitting here tonight, one of, the, one, of the, one of the greatest things about my mom, she couldn't have taught a theology class, uh, but she knew Jesus. She just knew Jesus. I mean, she talked to him like he was right there. Guess what? He was right there. He knows us. And so he's our priest. Folks, he knows you. Fears, temptations, struggles, pains, sicknesses, illnesses, he knows us. Let me give you a, a third takeaway that Jesus is king means that we can trust that Jesus reigns, he's in control. And uh, there's an already not yet to this reality. I'll talk about that a little bit more Sunday too. There's a rest that we've been provided. Hebrews 3 and 4 talks about that. And we're in that rest if we're in Christ, but there's a future aspect to that rest. Okay, heaven, we're not there yet. Same thing's true with Jesus' reign. He inaugurated his kingdom when he came to planet Earth. His kingdom is active and going on right now. He's in charge. He's reigning. Now, it doesn't look like that especially not in Washington, D.C. right now. They can't get their act figured out. I mean, I mean, it, it It amazes me. You think you've seen dis, Discord? And not, we had not seen any Discord, not since 1923 or what is it, 1856 or some kind of crazy thing. Can't even figure out who a speaker is. They're not going to get along, and they're not going to make us happy even if they do decide to get along. I mean, one of the things that I'm... I, politically, I would say I'm conservative, but I'm not really, I wouldn't really say I'm a part of a party because they all frustrate me. And I don't really want the Democrats and the Republicans to get along because that really scares me. If, if, they, if they say, hey, we're all on the same page on this. It's chaotic, right? And, and we see that and we're in a very blessed place to experience that. We still have significant measures of freedom that much of the world doesn't know. Okay, And there are elements of that that really frustrate us and discourage us. And thank goodness we don't live in the Ukraine or in communist China or in places where there is not religious freedom. Nevertheless, I want to remind you of something. Jesus reigns. It's not just that he will reign. It's not just that he's coming back one day and he's going to put his feet on planet earth. He's going to set up a kingdom and and we're all going to worship him and people are going to follow him. That is going to happen. It's not just that it's future, it's that it's present, current. He reigns. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Meaning that there's not a place on planet earth that Jesus has not said, this is mine and I'm in control. It may not feel like it in in your life. It definitely doesn't look like it in certain places in our world. But if Jesus has said it, then it's true. If He reigns, then guess what you can do? You can turn off the news, stop scrolling through the news headlines... Read what the Bible says about who Jesus is. And I'm going to tell you something. If you do that, you'll have a lot more peace tonight. You just will. Because he reigns. He's in charge. And you know what that means? As Christians, as a body of Christ, we ought to be the people in the world that walk around without pulling our hair out and wigging our hands out, and and palms sweating and nerve-wracked. Why? Because Jesus reigns. He's king. Not just a future king, a present king. And you know how I know that's true? I know it's true because the Bible says it, without question. But I want you to do something. And this is kind of in preparation for Sunday's message. How about you look back at all the different ways Jesus has shown his authority and sovereignty in your life already. If you just stop to think about all the things God's rescued you from, protected you from, walked with you through, forgiven you for, helped you with, why are you worried about what's coming down, your, down the pike tomorrow? If he's already been with you through all of that, the what-ifs that you're worried about in your mind are absolutely nothing to the one who reigns now. That's why we ought to trust. That's really good news. And by the way, that's why Jesus came to be prophet, priest, and king. Because when we see Elijah in the Old Testament, and we see David in the Old Testament, we see the priesthood in the Old Testament... They weren't meant to be the ideal. They were meant to be the illustration of the ideal. So when we read the Old Testament, we see, man, David did some great things, and then David did some messed up things. Read that, and we say, okay, there's a better David. There's a better king. The priests were okay in the Old Testament, but, man, they didn't trust God either. There's a better priest. Moses, man, he was good most of the time. Until he got angry and then he, you know, hit some rocks instead of talk to them. He messed up. There's a better Moses. The point of the Old Testament is to show this. Watch this. 1,500 years of history is to show the patience of God. If God will write 1,500 years of Old Testament history to just give us illustrations of the prophet, the priest, and the king, How does that show the patience of God in your life? Better yet, that person you're waiting on God to fix, how does that show the patience of God in their life? God is supremely patient, folks. And it's all expressed in the person of Jesus, prophet, priest, and king. Have a great night. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.